Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kion Wolf asking uh, during your podcast. I'm not sure what time you're listening to this, <laughs> but we're glad you tune in. We're glad you tune in. I hope every day, but whenever you can. So give us a call, but you have to support the show. We can't do it without your support. 1-800-584-2788. Go online at WNPR.org. And just like you made the great decision to listen to this podcast, please continue to make great decisions by being a member or renewing your membership. If you don't remember the last time you renewed your membership, then it's probably time to renew it. That's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem, but you're going to solve it because you're a public radio listener and that's what you do. So call 1-800-584-2788 or go to WNPR.org slash donate. And and thank you. Enjoy the podcast. I don't know. Maybe we should have had more Kafka-esque music to open the show, but I'm not even sure what that would be. Um, We're going to talk about Franz Kafka today, but uh, I wanted to say that you shouldn't be intimidated by that if you don't have a deep familiarity with his work. Everybody feels like they know something about Kafka, right? People just sling the name around all the time anyway. But you shouldn't be intimidated. We're going to explain lots of things to you uh, that will help you uh, understand who he was. Uh, in our second and third segments, uh, we'll talk first to uh, a, an artist who has created a graphic novel uh, based on 14 of Kafka's stories. That one is actually called Kafka-esque. I guess it's not a graphic novel. It's a graphic collection of stories. Uh, and towards the end, we'll really kind of explore that adjective, Kafka, Kafka-esque and whether it's appropriately applied or not. But right now we want to begin with a story that actually stretches right up almost to the doorstep of the present. Uh, Perhaps ironically, um, Kafka's work became the subject of, of all things, a trial. Uh, And we need to explain to you the nature of that trial. But to do that, we're going to have to lay some groundwork here. The trial itself is a pretty Kafka-esque thing. Uh, Joining us right now is Benjamin Ballant, library fellow at the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem. He's the author of, most recently, Kafka's Last Trial, The Case of a Literary Legacy. His next book, co-authored with Marav Mack, is Jerusalem, City of the Book. That's due out in May. Uh, He's joining us by Skype. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I think before we get to the trial, we have to just sort of sketch out a little bit about these. We have to take a little trip into the past and sketch out these two figures. One of them is the well-known name, Franz Kafka. Uh, The other one, though, is the other half of this really unusual Prague bromance, and his name is Max Brod. Tell us, first of all, a little bit about the friendship between these two men. In a way, it was a friendship between opposites. I mean, in a sense, <clears throat> Kafka, as sort of inward-looking as he was, met his match in Max Brod. They met in university. Max Brod was outgoing. He um, was responsible for uh, essentially promoting Kafka during his lifetime, championing him. The first ever book review ever written about Kafka was by Max Brod himself, a very outgoing personality who was also um, much more acclaimed author in his day than Kafka ever was. Max Brod ended up publishing something like 80 books. He had the opposite problem of Kafka. Kafka sort of was a perfectionist, and uh, Max Brod was, <laughs> if he erred at all, it was on the side of being very prolific. Right. I think you describe one of his 650-page books as a brambly. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there's this incredible uh, contrast that, that Kafka 
has published almost nothing. I think a total of maybe 450 pages, something like that, by the time that Mm -hmm. he dies. But Broad has published a lot of work, and he's this huge Kafka enthusiast. He's not only Kafka's best buddy, but he's he's a big believer in a writer that essentially nobody else knows about. That brings us to Kafka's rather unusual request at the time of his death. So basically, Max Broad returns from the funeral from Kafka died of tuberculosis just short of his 41st birthday. Max Broad returns from the funeral in Prague and goes to Kafka's apartment and finds there thousands of pages of unfinished novels and stories and diaries and notebooks. And among the rest of of this mess, he also finds two notes addressed to him. And both say essentially the same thing. They say, Dear Max, it's my last dying wish that you burn all of my manuscripts unread. And this is sort of the defining moment of Max Broad's life. Um, He had to choose uh, between his loyalty to his closest friend and his loyalty to literary posterity. Right. And this is across the decades something that's really been debated. Uh, I want to know what you think, but I find myself most persuaded by the idea that You know, Kafka already knew that Broad thought, Broad had said many times, your work needs to be read more, you should, you know, everybody needs to see this stuff, you're a great writer, you're terrific. So it seems like an odd choice to have decided to entrust to a man who'd already declared allegiance to the exact opposite outcome, an odd choice by Kafka to say, oh, you know, you're the guy who's going to burn all my stuff. I sort of read this as one element of Kafka's brilliance, that he chose the man least likely to carry out his last wishes. (laughs) And I think he he probably had some premonition of uh, what Broad would do, which was precisely the opposite of um, Kafka's request. And that is Broad not only saved the uh, this great uh, treasure trove, really, but dedicated the rest of his life to editing it, publishing it making himself into the greatest posthumous editor of the 20th century, giving us the Kafka that we have today. This is all This is all really um, our debt to Broad. Zadie Smith has a nice phrase. She says, to this day, we have no choice but to read Kafka broadly. That is through <laughs> Broad's eyes, through his editing. And this was the great project of, of Max Broad's life. There's, there are many differences between these two men. It may have been the key to their bromance. But um, one of them is that although you know, our image of Kafka is of this rather gaunt, kind of handsome looking guy. And Broad really wasn't very much either one of those things. Kafka was a little bit unlucky in love or ambivalent about women, his relationships with women. Whereas Broad was, as they say, reliable with the ladies, right? He was kind of a ladies man. Yes, very much so. And that's one of the ways that um, Broad really tried to draw Kafka out of himself. Kafka confided in Broad all of his, uh, let's say, rocky relationships with women. He was twice engaged to the same woman. He never married, unlike Max Broad, who who did. And there's another sense in which Broad tried to, let's say, sway Kafka, uh, and that is that uh, Max Broad was, and this will become relevant later in our story, but Max Broad was sort of front and center of the Zionist circles of Prague, um, especially in the 19-teens and 1920s, and was always trying to sort of recruit Kafka to the cause. Of course, Kafka sort of refused to be drawn out, refused to belong. And in my interpretation, there's some link between these two, um, let's say, reluctances. That is, Kafka, you might say, had a problem with um, 
uh, or an ethic of non-arrival. In other words, he never saw himself as arriving, neither in the uh, sense of domestic you know, harmony, nor in the sense of arriving to the promised land, which is something that uh, Max Broad ultimately did. Right. So Max Broad arrives in several different ways. And I mean, the reason that I bring up the ladies is not out of sheer prurience, although I'm not above that, uh, <laughs> but because it's significant, because one of the relationships, perhaps, I guess maybe, maybe the last significant relationship that Max Broad has is with a woman who is his secretary, who is married uh, to apparently a very accommodating man. So uh, tell yes. us about Esther. <clears throat> to go back one step, I mean, uh, the Max Broad had to rescue uh, these manuscripts, not just from Kafka himself, but then several years later from the Nazi occupation of Prague. And Max Broad, um, before he meets Esther, he rescues these papers in a single suitcase uh, on the last train that was permitted to uh, leave the uh, to cross the Czech-Polish border. And ultimately, although he tried to come to the United States several times, ultimately the only place that would accept him was then British Mandatory Palestine, where Max Broad arrives in 1939. And then he meets this um, uh, lifelong, very close friend, intimate friend and secretary, Esther Hoffe, um, who essentially helps him in this lifelong work of publishing the rest of Kafka's masterpieces. Right. Uh, I think maybe it is time to say one more thing, the thing that you were kind of getting at, I think, about Max Broad, which is that a few of these manuscripts get published pretty quickly, but the world doesn't fall down on its knees before Franz Kafka at that point. There really needs to be a Kafkaology invented. If he's going to be the St. Paul to, to Kafka's Jesus, I guess that's a pretty tortured comparison, but I mean, he really he has to invent some, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, some of the, the mytha, mytha of Kafka, some of the, I don't know, the the legend, the, the he has to make him a little bit more of an idol or an icon. Absolutely. Max Brod is the mythmaker of Kafka. In fact, he was the first biographer of Kafka. He published a biography of Kafka as early as 1937, which sort of set the tone for everyone else. Um, so he has his hand not as, not just in publishing Kafka, but in in uh, as you as you say quite rightly in in making the Kafka legend uh, as it as it is. And um, you know he was criticized for that. He was criticized for removing certain material from Kafka's diaries. I mean, after all, I should say too that he he made an ethical choice not just to publish the fiction uh, that Kafka left unfinished, but also to to publish all of Kafka's more personal and intimate material. So the reason we have Kafka's diaries today. The reason we have Kafka's letter to his father, uh, his correspondence, much of his correspondence, his love letters, uh, this is all the work also of uh, Max Broad. And, and I mean, up to and including kind of editing and finishing certain things. Sure. Eventually, Broad dies, and it turns out that this woman, Esther Hoffa, is now in possession of, I don't know, how much of the stuff that we're talking about does Esther wind up with? I should say that Kafka and, and Max Broad had one thing in common, which is that both were childless. So uh, Max Broad is now in Tel Aviv. He's working with Esther Hoffe, and he, in the 1960s, writes a will. In this will, which becomes the centerpiece of the Litter trial, he says two things. He says, on the one hand, I give you, Esther Hoffe, everything, all of my estate, including all of my Kafka manuscripts, worth untold millions, in part because he couldn't pay her. He didn't have a lot of money and he couldn't pay her for all her years of work for him. And on the other hand, he says something else, which is that I wish that before you, Esther Hoffe, before you die, that you arrange for the, the deposit of all of this in a proper archive. 
such as, and he lists a few, the first one in his list is the National Library in Jerusalem. So when Max Brod dies in 1968, Esther Hoffe, who had never met Kafka, inherits everything. Mm -hmm. This eventually will get us kind of one generation later to the trial. But before that happens, she actually does, because I guess she doesn't really have a lot of money. Max Brod didn't pay her a lot of money. She auctions off a thing or two, right? Right. So she, you have to imagine that, that these manuscripts now are, are in an apartment on Spinoza Street <laughs> in Tel Aviv that is shared. Esther shares it with her daughter, Eva, who will come into our story later, with uh, thousands of pages of Kafka's manuscripts and about a dozen cats. Mm -hmm. It's a very unlikely setting. And as you say, after Max Brod died in 1968, she did something that she never dared to do during his lifetime, and that is she starts to sell things off piecemeal. So the uh, most prominent example is that in 1988, she goes to Sotheby's in London and she puts up Kafka's original manuscript of his novel, The Trial, for auction. And it becomes the highest selling uh, modern manuscript ever sold. It went for about $2 million. And it goes to where? Well, that's exactly the thing. She was roundly criticized at the time because um, scholars said, well, look, I mean, it could be that if you put something up for auction, anyone can buy it. This manuscript, which is uh, priceless, could end up in some you know, private safe somewhere and never to be seen again. In the event, it was bought by a, the world-class literature archive of Germany in a town called Marbach, Germany. And they added it to their collection of Kafka manuscripts. It was sort of their crown jewel. Uh, and they ultimately were the purchasers of that manuscript. And ever since, they've really been, the Marbach archive has really been interested in adding to its Kafka collection. And so a lot of the rest of the story is this protracted conversation about to whom does Franz Kafka belong? To whom does his work belong? Where does it belong? And in Germany, although obviously in lots of ways, Germany seems like a, a betrayal and an inappropriate place for the work of a Jewish writer to land. On the other hand, Germany has a long obsession with Kafka, probably a greater obsession than is shared by the rest of the world, right? Exactly. And the first and most obvious uh, reason for that is that Kafka wrote in German, and he wrote in a very precise and pure German. Kafka didn't consider himself German. I mean, after all, he was living in Prague. Uh, I write in the book that he was sort of, I see him as a sort of triple minority or triply displaced in the sense that the Czechoslovakia was at the time a minority within the greater Austro-Hungarian Empire. The German speakers of Czechoslovakia were a minority within that country. And the Jews were a triple minority within the minority within the minority. <laughs> so um, this is another sense in which this issue of belonging comes to the fore and Kafka's refusal of belonging. But purely for the linguistic sense, because of because he wrote in German, for Marbach and for the Germans, he belongs firmly in the canon of German modernist literature. Then you go around Germany and there's a Kafka Strasse uh, in, in a lot of towns, right? They name streets after him and stuff like that. Absolutely. So uh, you can make an argument for them to, for it to be in the National Museum in, in Israel. Maybe you can make an argument for this uh, archival center in Germany. Uh, I think everybody would agree that this work needs to be where uh, people can look at it, scholars can study it. And that for a long, long, long time is exactly not where it is. I mean, except for these things that are sold off piecemeal. So where's the, where does the bulk of the work stay? 
The bulk of the work is split into three. It's um, in this apartment on Spinoza Street that belongs to the Hoffe family. It's in the bank vaults in Switzerland, in Zurich, where Max Brod deposited it uh, before he uh, gave it in his will to Esther Hoffe. And it's in a bank vault in Tel Aviv. So it's sort of it's sort of spread out. And as you say, it's completely inaccessible uh, to researchers and to scholars for all those decades from the death of Max Bardo in 1968 until basically the present. Eventually, this story does devolve from uh, Esther down to her initially to her two daughters, Ruth and Eva. So what was what were their attitudes towards this inheritance? Well, uh, Esther Hoffett died at the age of 100 in 2007 without fulfilling that second condition of Max Brod's will, without depositing it into any archive. She kept all these things in the locations that I just mentioned. And um, <clears throat> just at the very last moment, uh, the State of Israel, acting through the National Library, which sort of functions here the way the Library of Congress does in the U.S., <laughs> stepped in at the last moment and filed an objection to the probate of her will and said basically to the daughters, Eva and Ruti, the ones you just mentioned, no, 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 this is not your property. You don't have the right to inherit this. This belongs uh, to the State of Israel, to the National Library in Jerusalem, as significant cultural heritage belonging to the Jewish people. At that point is really when the trial uh, began, the trial that culminated uh, in 2016 in the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, and that trial really had these three points of, um, of the triangle of contesting interests. On the one hand, you have the National Library of Israel, which said Kafka's material belongs to us. It's, it's a national uh, property, cultural heritage, shouldn't belong in the, in the hands of an individual, not least an individual who has kept it under lock and key. You had um, the private interests represented by Eva Hoffe, who saw this as a family affair. Max Broad was, a, was really a father figure to her and her sister who helped to raise them and who simply wanted to inherit um, her, mother's estate, her mother's estate. And then lastly, the uh, German literary archive in Marbach, sort of the equivalent of the National Library in Jerusalem, stepped in to weigh in on the side of Eva Hoffe and to say, listen, you, ha you and your mother have been negotiating to sell all the rest of this to us. We are gonna weigh in on your side to say, first, you have the right to sell this material to whomever you choose. And second, we're gonna counter the Israeli claim and say, no, actually Kafka belongs more properly to German culture than to uh, the culture of a state that didn't exist when he died. We should say that uh, at a certain point, one of the sisters dies, Ruth dies, and I think her lawyer at the time said that the protracted, drawn-out uh, stress of the trial probably contributed to her death. And so now it's down to Eva. I don't know, is there a little bit you can sketch out for us uh, about Eva? She seems like a, like a Kafka character or maybe a Max Broad character. Yeah, you know, I mean, she was portrayed in, in uh, the press <clears throat> uh, when the press on this trial became international as a sort of greedy, eccentric cat lady. And I spent m many hours with her and I, I found her quite the opposite. I, I find, found her to be quite a sympathetic character. She saw herself almost as a character in a Kafka novel in the sense that she was an individual who saw herself as facing these two Goliaths in the sense of these two state actors, right? Um, and she felt at times quite helpless, quite despairing. And as I say, she really, at, at one point she even told me, she, she said to me, you know, Kafka has been like a curse to me. And I said, why is that? And she said, it's because all the Kafka material has been mixed up with all the Max Broad estate that has generated all this interest. 
um, and all these claims on the on behalf of Germany and Israel. And she said, I would willingly part with the Kafka manuscripts, as valuable as they are in monetary terms, if I were simply allowed to inherit Max Broad's estate and to promote Max Broad's memory. And there was also, um, I think, it, uh, she was not living a, a wealthy person's life by any means, and there was other money that she that was in that she was eligible to inherit. But that was all backed up or tied up until the Kafka exactly. stuff could be re- resolved. She was going to be in penury if she just let go of all the Kafka stuff. Uh, she would have come into, I think, some pretty significant money. But you know, that's yeah. you know, in many of Kafka's characters. Uh, they are victims of, uh, yes, these Leviathan organizations, but often they contribute to it somehow, too. Often they are at least partly the authors of their own problems. And is there a sense in which she's a Kafka character that way, that rather than working out some kind of compromise, she sort of, you know, stayed the course on, on this vision that she had? Yeah, certainly. And and I think no, none of the three sides is blameless in that sense. I mean, each acted, I think, in a quite heavy handed way. As I say, both she and her mother could have acted quite differently. They could have uh, opened the um, archives to researchers and to scholars. I mean, some of this stuff, I spoke to Kafka biographers in Germany who are just dying to see some of this stuff for the light that it would shed. For example, it has not just um, Kafka's diaries, but Max Broad's diaries that would shed light on on, on their uh, long and, and complex relationship. Each of the sides could have behaved, I think, in a, a bit more of a flexible way. But then, you know, then you wouldn't have had this sort of comic, tragic adventure story <laughs> that Kafka himself could have almost authored himself, you know. And we should say that, you know, each of these sides, they have agendas. So Germany uh, is looking to refurbish its reputation. Uh, it's done uh, a healthy, I think, self-examination uh, about the past. But it doesn't want to be a country where a Jewish writer can't be honored. It wants to be a country where a great Jewish writer who wrote in German can be honored. Uh, Israel, and I think Max Broad probably would would have thought so, too. Israel sees this uh, as a, an opportunity to showcase uh, a great, great, significant uh, Jewish writer uh, and whose who's best friend, you know, brought this work to the future site of Israel. All right. So for more, you got to read the book, Kafka's Last Trial, The Case of a Literary Legacy by Benjamin Ballant. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank yeah. you for having me. Uh, this is all fascinating stuff. All right. Let's meet some new Kafka friends uh, after this break. Uh, and maybe even some friends here from WNPR will be appearing in Kafka S. Guys. Came to his desk, parked a Kafka Where towns and mines Roman that's a Kafka His self-esteem is statuesque Hey, it's Kion Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 (laughs) seconds, maybe 50 seconds, Mm -hmm. unlike five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. 
All right. We're back with more Kafka. Uh, now joining us is Peter Cooper, a freelance illustrator who has written and illustrated Mad Magazine's Spy vs. Spy. Isn't Jonathan McNichol a huge Spy vs. Spy fan? I think he is, yeah, since 1997. Not that I'm not. I read it as a kid. Uh, he's produced many books and adapted Kafka's The Metamorphosis into comics. Uh, his most recent graphic novel is Kafka Ask. This is 14 uh, Kafka stories uh, that are rendered uh, in, in comic style. Uh, and Peter Cooper is joining us right now. Hi. Hey, how are you doing, Colin? Good. When I, look, when I read these stories the way that you've done them and look at the art that you've done, it's, it just seems like such an natu- incredibly natural fit uh, to have the, the right kind of, of graphic artist take this material. But how did you, how did you know that that could work? Or what made you want to do it? When I first came up upon Kafka, I uh, was the metamorphosis, and I thought of him as just being very dark and um, not, I didn't see any humor in it. And a friend of mine who was a big fan of Kafka would read him aloud over beers and listening to it and finding myself laughing, not just because of the beers, I real, it struck me that comics would be a really great draw, doing them, his writing in comics would work rather perfectly. And back in 1988, I tried the first one, which was a fratricide, which is included in this collection. And it just fell into place very quickly. And subsequently, whenever I had the opportunity to do a short story, I would I would pull out a Kafka and try it. And they they uh, suggested ideas for storytelling that I didn't have myself uh, for my own writing. And it gave me this sort of freedom to play around with the storytelling and have his text act as an anchor. You know, I, I was so glad to read in the introduction that you were influenced by some of the early newspaper comics. Newspaper comics used to look, be so great, so weird and dreamlike, uh, and, and the art was so inspired. Windsor McKay, uh, who created Dream of the Rare Bit Fiend, and I, I think didn't, didn't McKay uh, uh, create Little Nemo too? Yeah, yeah, that was that was more more kid friendly version. Uh, Dream of the Rare Bit Fiend, which is I think he started in, in like nineteen oh three or four. Um, which, you know, is a contemporary of Kafka's. And I, I always wondered whether Kafka might have seen newspapers from the United States and that that was in any way, I don't know if it would be an influence, but even just that he found the kinship that came from the zeitgeist of that time period. So we've taken a few of the um, stories that you've adapted and uh, had some of our people uh, voice them. So uh, I'm going to play one of them and have you react to it. Uh, This uh, is uh, literally a cat and mouse story called A Little Fable. Alas, every passing day, the world becomes narrower, said the mouse. At first it was so wide that I was frightened and kept running and running. I was relieved when at last I saw walls in the distance to the right and left. But these long walls have narrowed so quickly that I am already in the last room, and there stands the trap that I must run into. You only have to change your direction, said the cat, and ate him up. That's read by Lydia Brown. So, uh, Peter, uh, help us out a little bit. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about the story and and how you handled it. Uh, I looked at these. I had a short story collection. And it was the ones that were translated in the 50s and 40s and 50s. And there's this wonderful stilted quality to that, that tone also. I just love the, the voice that you get from those, which I discovered in the process of retranslating and, and reading a lot of other translations, is not you know, strictly, they, they, like all translations, they 
go through a process and each translator comes up with a slightly different answer. So, so the, the way the, the voice of Kafka, we are really hearing, unless you know German, you're really hearing it through somebody else's voice. I prefer the one from the 50s to more modern translations. But, and I tried to, to hew to that general tone. But stories like that, when I read them, they inspired a lot of references to current events, but at the same time, that kind of eternal quality. And I'm certainly seeing lots and lots of, of associations between Kafka and what's going on in the world today in the United States, and maybe in particular, but that's my, you know, being here and all, um, and it's going on around the world that these bureaucracies and these circumstances where the world is getting smaller and that I could show that in this form, you know, having, having it be anthropomorphic where there's animals doing it also makes, has a universality to it, which I love when Kafka does use animals. I have this whole theory that Paul Manafort would be a great uh, Kafka story. But, yeah, there's a way in which, you know, here's this guy who really for most of his life didn't venture far out of Prague, only occasionally, you know. I mean, spent most of his life in one location, wrote in German. This stuff, it just makes sense to a magical realist in Argentina or Brazil. It would make sense, I think, almost anywhere in the world. There's, There's a real transferability of all this stuff. And I think the way that you've handled it, too, calls a lot of attention to this. Let's hear just a little tiny segment. This is voiced by Katie Tularski from The Trees. The Trees. For we are like tree trunks in the snow. They appear to rest lightly, and a little prod should get them rolling. No, it can't be done, for they are firmly attached to the ground. But look, that, too, is only appearance. Um, you explain what it was uh, that you did with the trees. The trees called you to uh, another contemporary problem. Um, living in New York City, uh, the constant uh, issue of homelessness, it's, it's always in our face, just every walk to and fro. And I, when I read that, that very short, like one paragraph uh, story, I, what I saw was homelessness and that, that it was, uh, and it was another way. I, I was really deeply enjoying a sense of having Kafka kind of whisper in my ear. I know that was just my own, my own doing, but it, it, it just, it felt like these things were suggested. Like I wasn't trying to overlay a checklist of social woes. I just simply read the story, and that's what popped into my head. And that I think I could probably read any number of these stories and anybody who, who picks up Kafka and reads them will find their own interpretations. And that's the, that's really the beauty of Kafka is how much any, anybody who reads him will come away from it with a, a different vision. I like that idea of Kafka whispering in your ear, um, because I think that kind of has to happen, right? You have to do a Vulcan mind melt of some kind if you're going to do this. Indeed. And he's probably flying around the universe at this very moment. So all right. Laughing at all of this. So, so let's talk about one more. Let's talk about in the penal colony. I mean, I don't know. I can just say that name and already people are going to start thinking about, I mean, we're doing this particular show on the Wednesday after President Trump's wall speech. Uh, you don't have to stretch very far, I think, to make this connection. Let's hear uh, the voices of Lily Tyson, the producer for Next, and Jonathan McPants, producer uh, of our show. It was early morning and the streets were clean and empty as I headed to the train station. 
When I compared the church clock with my watch, I discovered it was much later than I thought, and I needed to hurry. The shock of this discovery caused me to doubt my way. I didn't really have a feel for the city just yet. Fortunately, I spotted a nearby policeman. I ran up to him and breathlessly asked for directions. You want directions? From me? Yes, since I don't know the way myself. Give it up, give it up, he said, then turned away like a man who wants to be alone with his laughter. So that's from Give It Up. But, I mean, these there are a bunch of stories, several of the stories that involve people interacting with very large, imposing, uh, not particularly friendly-looking authority figures, Peter Cooper. Yes. Give It Up was one that particularly uh, spoke to the anxiety that I was feeling at the time. And the way I, it also fell out as the drawing of that story where I was doing storytelling that I just hadn't thought about before and uh the 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 text just inspired it so completely and it 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 was part of this kinship i have that i found with his writing and with a number of writers the way they speak to you um kind of adds another layer to your what your own knowledge and and in this case through my drawings i found all sorts of storytelling modes that uh i could go kind of crazy with it and uh, I, I do have an enthusiasm for comics that is um, Kafkaesque <laughs> and that I am constantly trying to share this with people. And having done this for many years, it was especially through the years where people didn't think that graphic novels were had a place in bookstores or libraries. And so I felt like I was always trying to demonstrate what could be done with a comic strip. And Kafka was a, was a beautiful way to combine literary world and the comics world that would to show somebody who um, thought that they weren't neither fans of comics nor thought that they could, you know, read a comic and, you know, in an unusual way and follow it. And I, I'd like to think that I managed to do both of those things. I I think you certainly did. Uh, And we have to stop now because we've got one more segment to go here, but uh, great talking to you, Peter Cooper, uh, creator of Kafka-esque 14 stories, a graphic novelized collection of Kafka. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with one more conversation. All right. I've got my uh, Kafka tote bag and I've got my Kafka Instant Pot cookbook, my Kafka foam, big foam finger, my Kafka beer koozie. I think I'm ready to start listening to one of his albums. No? No album? I didn't understand. All right. Today's, uh, I wrote that joke for Kion Wolf, but then I <laughs> forgot to give it to her. So today's show is produced by Betsy Kay uh, and by Kion Wolf. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by uh, Anthony Perkins. All right. So uh, finally here on the show, as we got ready to do this show, uh, we just talk, kept talking about the fact that people just sling that word around all the time, Kafka-esque. Uh, and so what does it actually mean? Well, joining us, I hope I'm about to say her name correctly, Charlotte Allen. Am I saying your name right? Is that how you say it? Uh, Charlotte Aline. Aline, okay. That's a hard one to pronounce. Oh, no, I think I can manage it. Charlotte Aline, writer, playwright, uh, actor, and artist. She wrote, The meaning of Kafkaesque is about more than just pointless bureaucracy and giant insects for bustle. Well, the title kind of says it all, but do you want to elaborate on that? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I think a lot of people use the word Kafkaesque as a synonym for frustrating or bureaucratic. I'm on a certain level. I mean, you're not wrong if you're uh, filling out some convoluted paperwork and you think this is a Kafkaesque process to be stuck in, or if you're uploading your resume to one of those websites that then makes you type out all of your work experience all over again once you've uploaded the PDF. That's always annoying to me. Um, But I think a lot of people miss some of the nuances of the phrase that in Kafka's writing, it's not just that people are frustrated with bureaucracy, it's that they're using their own circular logic to fight circular logic. Like when Gregor Gregor Sampso wakes up as a giant cockroach, his first thought isn't like, oh gosh, what does this mean? Why have I turned into a giant cockroach? His first thought is, oh, I'm going to have to get to work on time. I'm going to be late for work. He's still thinking within this system. He's still acting like a cog in the machine. I think it's a really great point, and it's kind of typical of us, too, that we use Kafka as to talk about them, what they are doing to us, mm-hmm. those people, they. Uh, and and really, in a lot of Kafka, it's not that we make our own hells, but we, we contribute somehow, that it would be impossible to so fully imprison us if we didn't do some of the jailing ourselves. Yeah, I think one of my favorite of his short stories, uh, Poseidon, where he's talking about the sea god Poseidon is um, unable to explore his own oceans or appreciate any of the wonder of the sea because he's stuck at his desk doing paperwork. But the reason he gives for being stuck at his desk doing paperwork is that he doesn't trust anyone else with the work. He thinks everyone else is beneath him. So um, I think that's kind of unusual in a Kafka story that the protagonist is also the person in power and not sort of the soul-crushed businessman who's uh, working for someone. But, like, even the boss himself hates that he's stuck at his desk and yet won't let up on the work he's assigning himself. Um, well, yeah, there's, the, a, there's so much of people trapping themselves in these systems and to, in writing. It's totally the case of Poseidon. He, he has built his own his own prison and he won't deal with it. So that, but you know, go back to what you initially said, though. Mm-hmm. You know, we throw the word around to describe situations we're in. I do feel as though there are situations today I feel like if that if Kafka were alive today, he'd be very interested in social media. And in particular, I think he might be interested in those terms of use things that we click accept mm-hmm. to, right? That, <laughs> I don't know. Do you, have, do you have thoughts <laughs> about these things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, and yeah, again, I don't think it's wrong to use the word Kafka-esque to describe just any situation that reminds you of the sort of absurd bureaucracy of Kafka, but yeah, certainly like the iTunes agreement or any of these things where they they make you scroll to the bottom to be able to click OK, but no one has ever read it. And there could be almost any kind of information in there. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of our a lot of our social media use, especially whenever I see people on social media complaining about the evils of social media, it, it just feels very like we're all trapped in a Franz Kafka novel. Um, it, it feels very circular. Like we're, we hate this uh, system that forces us to, you know, feel judged by other people's photos and feel constantly outraged by the 24 news cycle. And yet the only way we have of registering our frustration is to post a status about how upset we are. Right. And, and also there's this Mephistophelian bargain that we never acknowledge. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook, Facebook is this tremendous tool which is given to us, quote, 
for free, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really not. Uh, and if we thought about it for 10 seconds, we would realize that nobody's going to build something that's that pervasive and that good and that all-encompassing and that useful in terms of making connections and archiving your life and communicating with other people. Nobody's going to hand you that for nothing. Uh, yeah. So go ahead. Riff on that if you want. Oh, yeah. I, I think um, certainly any kind of and what's scary is how many, how often I in my daily life, if I see something pop up that says, like, we've updated our privacy agreement, I always just click OK. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And I'm someone who will, like, rant to my friends about, like, how I'm worried that social media is, like, stealing all our information and selling it to advertisers. And that's just not right. But, like, absolutely, I would never take that far enough to then actually read any of the agreements that I'm just saying yes to. Um, yeah. So, I mean, they, you know, I could be like... Joseph K., they could come to my door any day now and say that I've sold my soul in a Facebook agreement, and I, I wouldn't have a leg to stand on defending myself because who knows? Maybe I did. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, Franz Kafka, we're alive today, definitely he would write something called the Privacy Agreement. So I guess the last That's thing sure. I'd like to ask you about, uh, Charlotte Aline, mm -hmm. is, you know, the other thing about Kafka, he died at the age of 41. He was a very obscure person at that time. We don't have the chance to ask him questions about, well, how much of this was intended to be comic? How much of this was intended to mm -hmm. be uh, uh, tragic and, and, and alienating? And maybe that's one of the reasons we struggle a little bit with the overall meaning of his legacy. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting how funny his writing is. Um, I, I, feel, I feel this way about a lot of writers that most of us encounter for the first time in high school. We're almost afraid of the comedy of it because we're taught that like, you know, serious writing is tragic primarily or dramatic that comedy isn't as serious, but I, it, I think it works funny on a personal level. Um, a, a lot of it is funny in that um, the situation is so absurd, but also funny in that we're watching these characters sort of play into their own suffering to continue to try to find uh, ways within the system to free themselves from the system. And it's just never going to work. Like in the trial, no matter uh, who he appeals to, all the people with more power, it's still no one seems to know who's in charge or who's making these rules. Everyone just follows them. Um, yeah, I think I think you have to recognize some level of absurdity in there. Although, of course, there's no telling what uh, Kafka himself would have wanted us to take away from his stories. Right. I think if you don't think there's something funny about being turned into a giant cockroach, <laughs> you're probably not trying hard enough. Uh, Charlotte yeah. Aline, writer, playwright, actor, artist. Uh, she wrote The Meeting of Kafka. Ask us about more than just pointless bureaucracy and giant insects for bustle. Thanks for being with us, Charlotte. Thank you so much. And we'll be back tomorrow, assuming that today is today and tomorrow is tomorrow, which given the fact that you might be listening on a podcast three years from now and we have robot overlords is guesswork on my part.